Leslie comes to read this morning's scripture, I wanted to provide an introduction to the passage. Uh, this song actually provides somewhat of a launching point. We just sang how the creator of the universe, during this fortunate turn of events, has invited us to be considered friends. This passage sort of says, says it this way, this one who has called us to be close to him, to be his friend, is about to tell us of a series of unfortunate events. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We began the whole winter season with that part two of Luke, where in chapter 9, verse 51, it says, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Luke is not just telling us a geographical marker. He's trying to say this is the turning point in Jesus' ministry as, as he makes his whole mission about what will be accomplished in Jerusalem. And up to this point, he's, he's encouraged his disciples with news of God's kingdom having come as one who's ushered in the presence of God's kingdom at work in this world, but now he's starting to tell them what they can expect when they get to Jerusalem, and he says it in the form of a warning. It's not necessarily words they want to hear or words we want to hear, but nevertheless, they're words of instructions for us, and we're going to look at this passage together and figure out what did Jesus mean by it. So let us hear the word of God. From Luke 12, Jesus talking to the crowd, including his disciples. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? This is the word of the Lord. A warning gets our attention, especially when it comes with a sense of urgency. And experience has taught us to pay attention to warnings and the likes with regards to hurricanes, floods, 
volcanoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, wildfires, active shooters, and bomb threats. When a warning is issued, some people panic and others ignore it. But most of us have learned to accept it and then to assess our situation and prepare accordingly. But not all warnings are taken seriously. It depends on several factors, things such as the credibility of the source that issues the warning, whether the warning is in the realm of probability or merely possibility, whether the magnitude of danger and its proximity threatens us or not. For example, in our recent rainstorm, there was a warning issued that the Russian River would reach flood stage in Guerneville. I dare say those who live nearby took it seriously. The rest of us said, good luck. <laughs> we who live on a fault line have been warned that an earthquake of severe magnitude is coming. Yet because it is possible and yet not imminent or predictable, we live as if nothing's going to happen. And we're not in danger. The British comedic group known as Beyond the Fringe, which preceded Monty Python, had a sketch of a group assembled on a mountain preparing for the end of the world. When the warning is about the end of the world, we all have various reactions to whether to take that seriously or not. What made this sketch particularly humorous is the person you would most want to trust, the Oxford-educated gentleman who speaks proper English, is the one who advocates the end of the world. And the man who peppers him with questions, wondering about the details, is less educated and speaks with a Cockney accent. And so the sketch proceeds something like this. How will it be this end of which you have spoken, Brother Enim? Well, it will be as if it were a mighty rending of the sky, and the mountains will sink, and the valleys will rise, and great will be the tumult thereof. Questions continue until this one. All right, then, when will it be? In about 30 seconds' time, according to the ancient pyramidic scrolls. And then soon you hear a countdown. And when it gets to zero, silence. It was GMT, wasn't it? <laughs> to which the Oxford-educated intellectual says, well, it's not quite the conflagration we had been banking on. Never mind, lads, same time tomorrow, we'll get a winner one day. <laughs> and that's how most of us respond to, to people predicting what the end is, when the end's going to be and what it's going to be like. Remember Y2K? When we all thought for sure the whole system was going to collapse and and it might not have been the end of the world, but how do you function without a computer and a cell phone? That's the end of the world, isn't it, if those go away? And then as, as the time zones, as it became midnight in different time zones, we all kept th thinking, 
well, it's Silicon Valley is really the heart of it all. It, it will be Pacific Standard Time. So we must wait. In this passage, Jesus seems to be issuing a warning of his own. And it comes in a twofold emphasis. First, he speaks of the coming of the Son of Man. And then whether he identified himself that way, the disciples learned to identify him that way. And the second is he speaks of a coming crisis. So the first half of this section, verses 35 to 48, is where he talks about the coming of the Son of Man. And he likens it in a parable to a group of household servants who must be ready and alert at all times to meet their master when he arrives. Um, in the same way, Jesus says that a thief does not announce when he's coming, so um, the only way to be prepared is to be ready all the time. Well, that's how it is with the coming of the Son of Man. You don't know when, so be ready, be on alert, be prepared. And those who are, when the, when the master does come, they can expect a reward. The servants themselves will be served by the master. And those who aren't ready, who, are, who have slacked off on the job, they can expect judgment. And boy, that gets our ears perked up, because who wants to be judged? Peter asks, is this parable meant for us, or is this for everyone? And... Jesus implies it has relevance for all, but its challenge is most pressing for his disciples who have been given knowledge and should know better. They're aware of, what, of, what, of what the, who the Son of Man is and what he has come to do. This knowledge of the Master's will and the various gifts of opportunity that come with it, Jesus ends up saying demands great responsibility. They're to be held accountable for how they, how they behave and how they respond to what they know. Now, as interpreters, we question whether Jesus is speaking here of his immediate situation and his presence with his disciples, his ministry of ushering in God's kingdom as the Son of God, or is he referring to the future, an event further out uh, which we know to be his return after his death, resurrection, and ascension. And when he comes in glory, when he comes as the returning king, it has the expectation of coming judgment at that time. It is the end. It is the fulfilled purpose of all time that that, that seems to be referring to. So which is Jesus referring to in this passage? How do we interpret it? Well, I'll remind you that when reading the Gospels, we must remember there are three levels of audience. There's the audience of Jesus and his disciples and those who hear him, the crowd. That's an audience. Then there's Luke who has compiled this material and arranged a Gospel. And the way he's arranged it has a message for his audience who are who are decades away from Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And then finally, there's us, who interpret it some millennia, two millennia later.
Therefore, we can understand why Jesus wants to warn his disciples. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's wanting them to understand what to expect when they arrive there. And his disciples haven't understood much of what he's told them up till now, and they understand even less of what Jerusalem means. So it's understandable why he wants to have them be prepared. Don't be caught off guard with what's about to happen, and especially what will happen to the Son of Man and what it will do to your faith when it happens. Now, Luke, on the other hand, may have inserted this passage so that his readers would hear it as a warning about Jesus' return, to not become complacent about that return. Every New Testament writer, Luke and Paul, every one of them believed that the return of Jesus would have happened in their lifetime. So when they write, they're writing as if you can expect Jesus to return. So many things that we interpret um, and we don't understand, like why didn't Paul speak against slavery? Why didn't he upend the social order of his day? Because he expected the return of Christ. And therefore, what he says about justice and what's right is couched in those terms. So we have to understand that. But then you can, read, you can read the full context of what he says about the fact that we are made new in Christ and the ground is level for all of us in relationship to Christ. We're to behave as followers of Jesus who respect one another and honor one another and love one another and serve one another, not just those who are in a position to serve. Well, some modern interpreters want to then say, the, similar to what Luke was saying, emphasize that Jesus' warning here is apocalyptic in nature, and it pertains to the end of the world. And then what they do is they make these warnings wildly misconstrued, emotionally manipulative, and I think their messages are inconsistent with the heart of the gospel. In other words, they use such messages to scare people to, into making a decision and to getting right with God or else. Because what's coming in terms of judgment, you don't want to have to experience. Well, I don't hear Jesus talking that way most of the time. So when he talks that way this time, you have to say, okay, what is this really about? And how do we keep the main thing the main thing and not get lost in speculation and wild um, teachings. For each of these different audiences, the point Jesus of Jesus' instruction seems to me to be to the same. The certainty of the Son of Man's coming requires vigilance despite the uncertainty of, his of the timing. What it means to be ready and watchful relates to carrying out, being faithful and serving God's purposes in this world. The same thing we've been taught all along of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Just keep on doing what we're called to do. A wise and faithful servant knows his master's will and consistently carries it out. So amidst, amidst this warning and alarm, Jesus says, 
Stay faithful. Stay true to what I've already taught you. Keep at it. Don't speculate. Don't get lost in all of the falderall. And don't follow wild misconceptions. Even his disciples at the beginning of Acts after Jesus' ascension said, when is it going to be that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? When will the end come is what they were saying. And he said, it's not for you to know. You have a mission to accomplish. You have work to do that I've given you to do. Get on with it and be faithful to it. Stay true to it. Well, the second section from verses 49 to 59, Jesus speaks of a coming crisis. Already he's engaged in battle with the powers of evil. Already he has issued a challenge of complete loyalty in the face of great opposition. And already he has said God's kingdom demands a reordering of life's priorities. Now Jesus intensifies his message with a warning of an impending crisis. He even speaks of it as a baptism in which he'll be immersed in it. Um, but it's not just him. It's going to be true of his disciples and all those with him. Um, so he's got their attention. I like how the message captures Jesus' words here. I've come to start a fire on this earth. How I wish it were blazing right now. I've come to change everything, to turn everything right side up. How I long for it to be finished. Do you think I came to smooth things over and make everything nice? Not so. I've come to disrupt and to confront. In other words, there's plenty wrong with this world, and it is ruled by an enemy, and Christ has come to set it right again. What's been turned upside down, he wants to right it. The wrongs that have been done, he wants to make them right again. And in doing so, he wants, his, he wants to make us right in that process so that we're right in relationship with God and one another. And we can live as the way God intended us to live. But it's going to be a crisis. It's going to be something catastrophic that takes place that will upend this world as it is. The coming crisis poses a challenge of absolute loyalty this eschatological future, which just simply means the future impinging on the present, makes this time decisive, decisively significant. There is no neutral ground. There are those who identify with Jesus and follow him, and those who do not and ultimately oppose him. And he says that divide runs right through the heart of every family and every home. It's just the nature of what it means when the gospel is proclaimed. Jesus says, you know how to interpret indicators of approaching weathered patterns so that when the wind comes from the west off the Mediterranean Sea, you say it's going to rain. Or when the winds come from the south off the desert, you say, boy, it's going to be warm. It's going to be a scorcher. And he says, you know how to interpret those times. How come you can't apply that to the present time? Why can't you tell what's going on around you? Why can't you see that Roman occupation and oppression and the oppressive regime of Herod has created a, is, is not good? Why can't you see that the wealthy, arrogant, 
high priests of Jerusalem can't be trusted and that the temple isn't functioning the way it was intended to. And why can't you read the false agendas of the Pharisees when they speak of righteousness? In the middle of it all, he is a prophet announcing God's kingdom and healing the sick and proclaiming what God has intended all along. As N.T. Wright puts it, why can't they put two and two together and realize that at this moment, everything that Israel has longed for in its history is coming to pass. It's about to happen. Why can't they see that it involves a crisis? Why do they not apply the same awareness of indicators contained in Jesus' ministry to interpret the events around them? And that's what Jesus is telling us to do. He's not saying be alarmed and be scared. He's just simply saying pay attention to what God is doing and get on with carrying it out. In 1945, scientists who helped develop the first atomic weapons in the Manhattan Project founded what is called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And two years later, they created something known as the doomsday clock. They used the imagery of midnight to represent the apocalypse and the countdown to a nuclear explosion to convey the severity of threat to humanity and our planet. The decision where to place the minute hand of the doomsday clock is made every year by the Bulletin's Science and Security Board in consultation with its board of sponsors, which happens to include 15 Nobel laureates. These are not your average run-of-the-mill scientists. These are very bright people who are not trying to create an alarm. They're just trying to make us aware. The clock has become universally recognized indicator of the world's vulnerability to catastrophe. I don't know if you saw the bulletin. It appeared on January 24th. I had to go look for it. <laughs> it's not something I readily want to find out about. But the clock is set two minutes to midnight. It's the same as the year before. But they had this to say. We face two simultaneous existential threats which are cause for extreme concern and immediate attention. That of nuclear weapons and climate change. And these are exacerbated by the increased use of information warfare that dis and disruptive technologies technologies that are undermining democracies around the world, that are amplifying the risk and put the future of civilization in extraordinary danger. Well, I don't say this to you to make you alarmed and to say, okay, it's time we start turning the clock back and here are the different ways to do it. I say it because that must have been what it felt like for the disciples to hear Jesus issue his warning. They weren't sure what it meant. And most importantly, what does this mean for us? That's why Peter says, is, do you, are you talking to us or are you talking to someone else? You know that great Italian line, you talking to me? You know, that's what Peter was saying um, with a Jewish accent. <laughs> Unlike most of us, in the time of Jesus, people of Jewish faith wanted the end to come. They longed for the day 
that it would all come to a to that it would that God would bring it to a rapt conclusion. Because their belief was that it meant God would upend all the wrongs done to them as God's people. And he would bring about justice and judgment against Israel's enemies and establish his rule with Israel at the center of it all. And the surprising thing is Jesus says, you Israel are in that mix as well. You're in need of being rescued. You're in need of being judged. Because you have failed to carry out your mission, so I've come to do it for you. The point is, we need not be alarmed. We need to pay attention to the one who's speaking and what he teaches us most of the time and what's central to his teaching and not find passages like this to speculate and worry about. C.S. Lewis, in The Case for Christianity, asked this question. Why did God land in this enemy-occupied world in disguise and start a community to undermine the devil? Why did he not land in force and invade it? And now, why is he delaying his return to control it? And his answer, he wants to give us a chance to join his side safely. And then he says, I often wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it is they're asking. Because when that happens, it means the end of the world. He says, when the author walks on the stage, the play's over. God is going to invade, all right, but what is the good of saying you're on his side then? None of us will have any choice left. It will be too late to choose which side you're on. That's not the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover what we've chosen, whether we're aware of it or not. God is holding back to give us that chance, but it won't last forever. So take it or leave it. Well, I think the main point is the delay of Christ's return doesn't have to mean um, that things are going to get worse or that we can be optimistic and say, oh, everything's fine. It'll all be better in the end. The point is the presence of Christ in this world and the establishment of God's kingdom already at work in this world means we have work to do. We're not to worry or be scared or, or lose our way. We're to, we're to follow diligently and be faithful. And then tell others the good news. Invite them to know Jesus the way you've been invited by Jesus. Don't try to manipulate them to make a decision because um, they don't want to experience gnashing of teeth and the pit of fire and all the other things that people dream up in order to describe how bad it's going to be. God has called us to himself. Let us uh, extend that invitation in the sphere of Christ's influence wherever he puts us. So be it.